it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight, we have episode 199. Tonight, we're going to talk to fellow contributor Cameron Smith, who is also a CPA. He works with us on the e-investing for beginners blog. And he, as I mentioned, is a CPA. He's a very smart guy. And he's going to share with us some ideas about how to help mitigate losses. So Cameron, do you, would you like to say hello to everybody and tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Hi, Dave. Hi, Andrew. Uh, great to finally uh, get on the podcast. Been writing for you for a while now, so it was long overdue. Sadly, it sounds like I just missed the uh, 200th episode, so I'll have to come back for that one, maybe. <laughs> sounds good. So I guess, tell us a little bit about what you got going on and what your focus has been on the blog and some of the things you wanted to talk about tonight. Yeah, sure. For anyone out there that's read some of my articles on Andrew's site, I'm a pretty frugal value investor um, and a pretty cautious guy. So one of the things that really has caught my eye in the last year, and I've started to experiment with it, has been uh, protective put option strategies. It's something that I learned about while studying for the CFA. And I think it's a really overlooked uh, risk management strategy that's pretty easy for your average retail investor to, to take a stab at. So maybe let's start at what is a put and let's just assume we don't know anything about options at all. So what is a put and how do, how does that help mitigate losses? Sure. So pretty much a put option, it's an option to sell an underlying security. So that could be any security, it could be a market index as well. So you're buying the right to be able to sell that security at the strike price of the put option. 
And then, of course, you have the maturity horizon of the option as well. So at some point, it will expire worthless if it has never reached that strike price. So you can think of it as like shorting the stock. And so I guess in the scope of the portfolio, what what is the goal of are we trying to buy and sell quickly or how does it function within the portfolio? Sure. So I'll go back to it is a lot different than shorting a stock because when you short a stock, um, you're you have potentially unlimited losses if that stock continues to go up. Whereas with a put option, all you can lose is your premium that you paid for the put option if it expires worthless. So it has that good aspect to it as well. Okay. okay so uh, I guess sorry, go ahead. Uh, so if we get back up just a minute for beginners like me with this kind of idea, can you give me like a real life example of maybe how exactly this would work? So if I was going to buy, I don't know, let's say Apple or a company like that, how would this work? Sure. So I I got a couple examples in the recent article that I've written for Andrew. One of them I used was JP Morgan and the other was Tesla. Perfect. Yeah. So with JP Morgan, so one of the underlying factors of any option price is the volatility. So JP Morgan is obviously a lot less volatile than Tesla. If we're looking at September maturity at the money put options for JP Morgan, you're only paying a 4.8% premium to hedge that position at the money up until September. So here we are sitting in June, that's July, August, September, that's three months worth of sort of insurance, you can think about it. For that 4.8 insurance premium you're paying, you can hedge a JP Morgan position for three months. Okay. And then I guess, how would that work with Tesla then? Because it's they're they're a lot more like you yeah, said, a lot more yeah. volatile. So how would that very work? very different ballgame with that? So Tesla, you're looking at a twenty four point eight percent premium for that at the money put option that expires in September. And when I say at the money, the strike price of the option is the same as the current trading price of the underlying security. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. So that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. The way I do it with my portfolio, Dave, I I use what's called a crosshead. And I have a long portfolio of various sectors and, and individual securities. And rather than buy put options on the individual securities, I just buy put options on the S&P 500. So it's called a cross hedge because you're not matching exactly asset for asset, but it still gives you that that protection to the downs. And let me just look up the number here for what, you're pay, what you'd be paying for a September S&P put option. You'd only be paying 3.4% premium to hedge a passive portfolio with a put option. Can you explain exactly what that hedge would look like? So let's say you you hedge the S&P and the S&P crashes 20% by September. What does that look like? What did the hedge do for you as far as return and and versus what you paid for the premium? Sure. So in that scenario, so you've paid 3.4% for the, to have the put option, market's fallen 20%. Your net gain on that put option would be, what is that? 16.6%? Yeah, yeah sounds about right. 16.6%. And then don't forget, you stay long your underlying portfolio as well, because we're not talking about naked put options. We're talking about protective put options. So you're protecting your underlying position. So your underlying portfolio would have lost 20%. And this whole put option strategy would have gained 16.6%. 
So your net loss would be that difference there, which is in effect uh, the premium that you've paid. Yeah, it makes sense. So basically the upside is if we have a market crash, um, assuming assuming that the stocks in your portfolio crash and the market also crashes, then you have protection on the downside. And then it's like you said, like an insurance policy where if the market doesn't crash by September, you're out the 3% in premium. Exactly, exactly. So that you're you always do have that risk of the option expiring worthless. And I've had that happen to me before. So it's probably been a year, a year and a half that I've been experimenting with this. And it was actually quite fortunate I started experimenting with it before COVID hit. So I was actually pretty much fully hedged when COVID hit, but of course never really thought COVID would get that bad and the market would do what it did. So I only probably sold my put options, protecting about 15% of the downside there. Um, but it was still really nice to have and uh, sort of was the proving factor to tell me that it, it can work. Because yeah, guess- looking back last year, the market was already expensive pre-COVID. Now we're getting over COVID and we're even more expensive than we were before. Yeah, it's a, an interesting idea for sure. And in particular, if you feel very strongly about where valuations are and where the market is going. And it is interesting too as well, where based on how volatile the market is, how much you'll have to pay for that insurance. And I guess when you're looking at for yourself, is this something that you plan to have a hedge for the rest of your investing life, a thing? No. Um, that would be no. like my first part of the question. Okay. Yeah, so, so how do you determine like where, I would where say or where to of... put a hedge? Yeah. So I would say really in in times of excess, like when we're sitting one, two standard deviations above historic market average levels, I'd say that would be a a good time to put a hedge on. And the other thing, because like we're talking about volatility is such an important part of the pricing. The interesting thing that happens is as the market goes up and just melts up, as we call it, volatility always becomes really low. So these options get really cheap. So the market doesn't even have to fall all that much and volatility can pick up as well. And these things also end up quite in the money. But yeah, not a strategy to do every year of your life, for sure, because it's really going to affect that compounding power of your portfolio. Because on an annualized basis, you're looking at 7.5% to hedge which really is the market return that you'd be expecting to get over the long term. So not something you want to be doing. Every- like anything else, it's, there's no free lunch. But yeah, to your no point, free- if you feel strongly about where the market is, and you can have some potential upside too, where if the stocks in your portfolio happen not to fall as much as the market does, now you're gaining on both ends. Yeah, exactly. Because like I mentioned, I'm doing a cross hedge here as if my portfolio was totally passive, but I'm probably 75% active, 25% passive. And as we it comes down to stock picking, can you pick stocks that are going to perform better than the market's going to perform as well? Yeah. A specific loss or is it more about trying to hedge the whole market? Yeah. So for me, it's more about trying to hedge the whole market. But if you're an individual investor who is a little cautious about one of their holdings, for sure, you can just do one of the holdings. But that being said, the more risky that holding is, the more you're going to be paying for this put option, as we saw in the case with Tesla. Yeah. So would it make any sense to, to put these kinds of 
options on companies you don't own? Yeah, you could do that for sure. That would be losing the protective put option strategy of it. It would become a little more speculative at that point. But yeah, you for sure, you for sure could. Yeah. Okay. Because so, it has the benefit, unlike shorting a stock, where you don't have unlimited losses. All you can lose is that is the premium that you paid. Okay. All right. That makes sense. I think the big the big thing about it is too when when you buy um, an option like a call option or a put option, it gives you basically effective control over a hundred shares. So when the stock moves like a percent, you could gain like ten percent. So it, like it magnifies, it gives you like the effects of leverage without without needing to be leveraged. Cameron said you can only lose what you put in. And so that's how like only paying 3% can give you a gain of 10%, 20%, whatever it is, if the market goes down yeah. um, because of that kind of amplification factor. And I, I know where your mind's going, Dave, because when I first heard of this thing, I, I may have may not have dabbled as well. And you instantly want to effectively short and, and buy puts against the stocks that are very expensive. But Cameron was saying in the example, those tend to be more volatile because they are expensive, because they are this like these like really high multiple stocks that have huge drop downs and it makes it really hard to make a profit when they do crash because that's what they do and you're paying for that volatility. And so mm-hmm. I think it is difficult to like you said, Cameron, to to pick stocks that are going to go down because it can get speculative. Yeah, for sure. For sure. But once again, it is a little safer than shorting the stock. So what's the time length of how long you can put these kinds of options on? Yeah, that's a good question. It really depends on who's writing what options because someone has to write this option for you to be able to purchase it. So right now I've, I've, seen the March 2022 option on the S&P 500. And I've recently seen the December 2022 option spring up that people have started writing on. So we're looking out like a year and nine, year or six months there. So yeah, so quite a long time frame. For myself, I try and keep it around a year is what I do. And then I roll it as it gets close to maturity to not let it expire completely worthless. And these do not have, do they have a monthly or an annual fee that they charge to put these on? Nope. Nope. Okay. Yeah. Just the time decay of that maturity and premium expiring. Okay. All right. And the other thing that I've, I've noticed that's worth mentioning is with like most profitable companies and the index in general, the longer you look out in maturity, the cheaper you're paying per day for a put option because that company or the index is making profits and naturally going up in value. So your fixed strike price, as you go out in the future, it becomes less valuable. So the longer you go out in maturity, the cheaper you're paying per day to hedge. So that's an interesting point that I've found out. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money, not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. 
create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep Podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep Podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Yeah, there are some tidbits on that in in the article soon to be posted on Andrew's website as well. All right. So we've talked about put options and the insurance that that can help with hedging your portfolio. Let's talk a little bit about the companies that you choose. So when you're looking at buying a company, what kind of, what is your process? How do you work through from finding the idea to 
pulling the trigger? What are those, what is the process for you? Sure. I think screeners are a really important thing for every investor to use because screeners is where you're going to uncover the gems that you never knew about before. If you're not using screeners, you're just going to be sticking with the same stocks that you read about in the news and that everyone else is exposed to a bit of a herding mentality. So I think screeners are always a really important idea. And I have a couple saved ones on my broker that I refresh on a weekly basis and see what's changed. And if any new names have sprung up that excite me. Go ahead. Sure. Yeah. Then after that point, I have sort of one metric that to me is it's the be all end all for that initial back of the envelope math. And I have an article on e-investing for beginners on this. Actually, it was my first article I wrote for you, Andrew, if you recall. It's uh, I've coined it investors adjusted return on it. And it's very similar to the Schiller PE, which takes 10 years earnings and adjusts it for inflation. But here I'm looking at 10 years average return on equity as a percent. And then I'm multiplying that by the price to book value that you're paying for that equity. So you can think about it in terms of an equation where you have return on equity and price to book value. And if you combine those together and cancel out likes and likes, you have an earnings yield. And that will quickly give you an idea of, okay, if I hold this stock for 10 years, I can expect an average return of 10% at this price to book value. Now, it doesn't work for every company, especially tech companies who really don't trade there accordingly to book value and companies that repurchase a lot of shares. But it does still tell you quite a lot about what you're paying for book value and what the return on equity is of that business. So can you explain return on equity for a beginner who isn't aware of the concept and also why it's a useful tool when looking at companies? Sure. So return on equity is the net income of the company divided by the equity of the business. So you can think of it as the owners of the business have contributed all this equity and how much are they earning per year on the equity that they've contributed? Yeah. And then what the like the Schiller PE does and my own sort of investors is it looks at that average over 10 years so that you get the business cycle in it as well. So as a long-term investor, I'm fine with a couple bad years and it might even be a great opportunity to buy. So do you have a do you have a threshold that you look for when you're looking at that kind of benefit? Yeah, so I'm generally looking for like that that 10%. So what would a passive investor be getting over a long-term time horizon? And that's my 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 hurdle rate. All right. So after we find a company that passes your hurdle rate, where do we go from there? What do you where where do you take the next steps? Sure. So after I find a company that sort of meets that initial hurdle, I'll take it a step further and I'll really start analyzing the financials. I'll look at the balance sheet, income statement, cash flow. I'll look at it on a historical basis. I'll look for things like share buybacks, good return on equity, good return on invested capital, good debt levels. And then I'll make start making projections into the future. And I use a model to do this. I've actually started selling it on e-investing for beginners with the help of Andrew, which has been great. And it's up there for anyone to purchase. And pretty much you can plug in a couple of years of historical financials. It'll 
calculate various ratios for you to help you project into the future. And it's all pretty automated. Once you punch in those couple of years, you can then play around with growth levels, with different debt levels, and it'll really spit out a bunch of different valuation metrics for you from discounted cash flows to a growth model. And yeah, I really, it, I develop really six, seven base valuations. And then I'm looking at an average so that it's aim small, miss small when you get that average valuation level. So this is something that I use as well. It's one of the tools I use um, for my stocks, particularly with the the DCF model. So what a DCF is, it stands for discounted cash flow. And it's basically how Warren Buffett analyzes the valuation of a company. And Cameron, you mentioned you're studying for the CFA. This is something they teach in the various classes on on valuation there. And for sure. CFA university classes. The, yeah. the DCF is it's really your golden boy in terms of valuing a company. Cause at at the end of the day, it's all about the cash flows to investors. And so I guess a couple of basic inputs it, it, you, you have to make an assumption on what you think the growth rate is and how risky you think that growth is going to be, and then how much cash flow a company makes. Mm-hmm. And that's how you try to come up with a estimate for how much a company is worth. And and so it can be it can pinpoint you more than comparing like a price to earnings or price to book would because you're building these different things in. And I, I like I like the model just for the the DCF part. And I like how I've customized it and made it into my own where I can use it for the companies I'm looking at. Yeah, and, it's totally know, it, customizable with what right. you The thing that I like about it and one of the things that has really been helpful for me is you can see, I like the way that it projects future, future different, uh, it projects different metrics as well as different items from the financials into the future so that I can look and see what how realistic my projections are. So in other yeah. words, if I'm looking at a company and I am projecting that, hey, it's going to grow 10% over the next 10 years, then I can see how much that really is going to be. And then I can, in my head, look at it and go, is that really a, re- a realistic number for the revenue? And uh, one thing that I've started doing is if it's a smaller company, let's say it's a smaller market cap company and it's in a, it's in a market that has a couple of big players in it, then if I look at that projected revenue growth over 10 years and compare it to some of the big boys in, in the, the sector and it's blowing them away, then I can go, well, maybe that's not realistic. So that, that can help give me a sense of whether I'm being you know, a little bit too enthusiastic or not. Yeah. And especially when you're looking at smaller companies uh, that are growing and comparing them to bigger guys in the industry, you can look at things like how their uh, gross margins or operating margins will change as they get bigger and develop into one of those big players and see, uh, okay, is that already built into the valuation that the market is giving it? Or is there still opportunity there to be had? Yeah, I agree. And the other thing I liked about it too, was the ability to adjust things so that you can try to find a range of values as opposed to just trying to find the one perfect price because sometimes you can make small adjustments and you can see what is having a bigger impact on the value of the company, whether it's 
the debt load or whether it's the revenues or whether it's the margins, all those things have an impact on how you value a company. And it's kind of cool to see with the model, it weighs everything out so you can see it. I'm a visual person. And so I like to see that stuff and that's very helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. You have uh, a lot of sensitivity analysis that you can do there with all the different inputs at plays. So how long did it take you to create this thing? It took me a couple of weeks to create it and and a year to perfect it, I would say. Yeah. Kept on adding in sort of more evaluation metrics as I got. Because once you get the projected financials, you can build in a bunch of different things. So as I kept learning different valuation metrics through the CFA and my other studies, I just kept on adding in more valuation metrics to that football field of valuations that we give on the front tab there that build into that average. Yeah. Yeah. That's very helpful. So when you're using this kind of model, is there a, is was there a company types or styles of industries that you felt like this was a better fit for, or is this kind of a one size fits all kind of model? Is that is it, was that kind of your hope for? Yeah, I would say it's a really a one size fits all because it gives a lot of flexibility in terms of what you're looking at and how you want to look at it. So if it's a company that's financially distressed right now, you can be paying close attention to the cash flow projections and how bad are things going to get in a year, in two years, and what they need to do to turn it around and how realistic that. And if you're looking at your one of your big mega caps, that's a steady grower. You can look in. So how much of that's already being priced into the valuation as we look out in time and what's the chance of them beating that from your perspective? But yeah, they're very flexible in terms of what it can be used for. Nice. So let's say that you find a company that you really like and you go through all this. Are there anything, is there anything in particular that you look for that is maybe a red flag that would make you go, eh, nope, we're done here and move on? Or are there things that you'll work through and maybe normalize over a longer period if you see something that's lumpy, for example? A couple red flags for me are always, and normally this will all catch these before I even get to the point of putting it into the model. But I always, first off, I'm looking at a return on invested capital that's really above an economically appropriate level. So when we talk about return on invested capital, we're talking about the returns to both debt and equity. We were talking about return on equity before, but there we're looking at just the equity people. So return on invested capital, both debt and equity. um, And that needs to be an economically sound level. And I I typically look for something about 7%, depending on the industry, which gives it the potential to be levered up so that your equity holders are getting that 10% return that I look for. So that's the first rule of thumb that I look for is a 7% return on invested capital. And then the second thing that I always look for is share issuances. I, I find that that can be a real red flag if a company's issuing shares on a constant basis. It proves that they can't grow under their own weight of it. Yeah. And I don't like my equity being diluted. <laughs> Who does? Yeah. <laughs> it makes three of us. <laughs> Who does? <laughs> oh, that's, that, that's awesome. All right. So let's say it passes all the tests. Then are you, are you a margin of safety kind of guy? Or what, is, what would hold you back from pulling the trigger? Is it, do you go through the financial part of it? And do you start looking at maybe some of the quantitative or the qualitative? Ugh. Start looking at some of the qualitative 
type of ideas as well? Yeah, I'm probably more of a quant guy, Dave. Okay. Um, but I definitely have to like the industry and the long-term prospects. I'm not too much concerned with the industry. Like I'll go anywhere and, and do anything if I can get that valuation and investors adjusted ROE that I want. So yeah, I'd say I'm really more heavily on the quant side. One other important thing whenever you're doing a DCF or valuation is, is the WAC, the discount rate that you're going to to discount the cash flows at. And that's something we've built into the model as well, where you can go and grab the specific figures for the company that you're analyzing. And just you got to be really careful there that you're really using a conservative discount rate or else things can easily start to look very rosy when really they're not and you're just being a little aggressive with that discount rate. So I tend to really keep my discount rate stable around 8%, 7% and really don't get too aggressive with it. I guess that's where the value of you having multiple models in there comes up because then if your DCF is like through the roof and all your other valuations are telling you that's not the case, then you're like, well, maybe it was my discount rate. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I will go lower for like really great companies. Like I'll go down to five and stuff, but that's very rare. Yeah, I have a similar kind of mindset to that too. Thinking about somebody who's maybe just starting out, they're wanting to dip their toes into looking at valuation models, looking deeper into the financials. If you could kind of go back in time and think about when you were first digging into that, would there be something you would say to that past version of yourself to help him along the way of not getting too overwhelmed because it is a lot of jargon and a lot of parts to financial statements? Yeah, sure. I, I had one teacher back at university. I think she she told us to sort of Google one word every day and slowly continue to build your vocabulary and your knowledge and don't get overwhelmed. And yeah read the business section and stuff as well. But yeah, just be curious and explore. And yeah, do it until your brain hurts and then take a break. <laughs> <laughs> I like that philosophy. Then go outside and take a walk. This has been great. A lot of good ideas on the show tonight, Cameron. We definitely want to thank you for coming on and sharing with us from having a portfolio hedge to digging deeper into companies and, and trying to find value in a arguably overvalued market, always a tough sell, something that people who are in the trenches trying to find stocks, we're dealing with that all the time. And it's good to hear your thoughts on that and, and some ways that, that people can try to navigate that. So tell us about if they're interested in more of your work, how can they find out more about you and the model that you've been discussing? Sure. So my uh, model is available on investing for beginners under the products page. And you'll find I also have quite a few articles up there as well. I think over the years, it's probably crossed the 50 mark for sure at this point. So I guess we, we can search for you, your name, Cameron Smith. To be clear, it's not the Australian golfer who's on TV all the time. Cameron Smith, the finance guy. Yeah, Cameron Smith, the finance guy. I often confuse with the Australian golf. Are, yeah. Do you have a similar haircut? No. No, you no. don't rock the mullet? No, no, not <laughs> anymore. Same <laughs> handicap? <laughs> Same handicap though, yeah. Yeah, okay. Wow, I'm impressed. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I definitely think people who are interested should check out the blog post you did, you can go on the website. Protective put option. Yeah. Okay. Search protective put option. You can read all about 
the hedge, if you search investor adjusted ROE or return on equity, you should be able to find that other post that we referenced and all good stuff. And and hopefully we can talk to you again. Thanks a lot, guys. And congrats on nearing your 200th show next week. (laughs) Appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much, Cameron. We really appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us tonight. It was awesome. Thanks a lot again, guys. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.